The Death of Jean. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Bob Neufeld. The Death of Jean. From What is Man and Other Essays by Mark Twain. Introduction. The death of Jean Clemens occurred early in the morning of December twenty-fourth, nineteen o nine. Mr. Clemens was in great stress of mind when I first saw him, but a few hours later I found him writing steadily. I am setting it down, he said. Everything. It is a relief to me to write it. It furnishes me an excuse for thinking. At intervals during that day and the next I looked in, and usually found him writing. Then, on the evening of the twenty-sixth, when he knew that Jean had been laid to rest in Elmira, he came to my room with the manuscript in his hand. "'I have finished it,' he said. "'Read it. I can form no opinion of it myself. If you think it worthy, some day, at the proper time, it can end my autobiography. It is the final chapter.' Four months later, almost to the day, April 21st, he was with Jean. Albert Bigelow Payne, Stormfield, Christmas Eve, 11 a.m., 1909. Jean is dead. Has any one ever tried to put upon paper all the little happenings connected with a dear one? Happenings of the twenty-four hours preceding the sudden and unexpected death of that dear one? Would a book contain them? Would two books contain them? I think not. They pour into the mind in a flood. They are little things that have been always happening every day, and were always so unimportant and easily forgettable before. But now, now how different, how precious they are! Now, dear, how unforgettable, how pathetic, how sacred! How clothed with dignity! Last night, Jean, all flushed with splendid health, and I, the same, from the wholesome effects of my Bermuda holiday, strolled hand in hand from the dinner-table, and sat down in the library, and chatted and planned and discussed, cheerfully and happily, and how unsuspectingly, until nine, which is late for us. Then went upstairs, Jean's friendly German dog following. At my door, Jean said, I can't kiss you good night, father. I have a cold, and you could catch it. I bent and kissed her hand. She was moved. I saw it in her eyes. And she impulsively kissed my hand in return. Then, with the usual gay, Sleep well, dear, from both we parted. At half past seven this morning, I woke and heard voices outside my door. I said to myself, Jean is starting on her usual horseback flight to the station for the mail. Then Katie entered, stood quaking and gasping at my bedside a moment, then found her tongue. Miss Jean is dead. Possibly I know now what the soldier feels when a bullet crashes through his heart. In her bathroom, there she lay, 
the fair young creature, stretched upon the floor and covered with a sheet, and looking so placid, so natural, and as if asleep. We knew what had happened. She was an epileptic. She had been seized with a convulsion and heart failure in her bath. The doctor had to come several miles. His efforts, like our previous ones, failed to bring her back to life. It is noon now. How lovable she looks! How sweet and how tranquil! It is a noble face, and full of dignity. And that was a good heart that lies there so still. In England, thirteen years ago, my wife and I were stabbed to the heart with a cablegram which said, Susie was mercifully released today. I had to send a like shot to Clara in Berlin this morning. With the peremptory addition, you must not come home. Clara and her husband sailed from here on the eleventh of this month. How will Clara bear it? Jean, from her babyhood, was a worshipper of Clara. Four days ago I came back from a month's holiday in Bermuda in perfected health, but by some accident the reporters failed to perceive this. Day before yesterday letters and telegrams began to arrive from friends and strangers which indicated that I was supposed to be dangerously ill. Yesterday Jean begged me to explain my case through the Associated Press. I said it was not important enough, but she was distressed and said I must think of Clara. Clara would see the report in the German papers, and as she had been nursing her husband day and night for four months, and was worn out and feeble, the shock might be disastrous. There was reason in that, so I sent a humorous paragraph by telephone to the Associated Press, denying the charge that I was dying, and saying I would not do such a thing at my time of life. Jean was a little troubled, and did not like to see me treat the matter so lightly. But I said that it was best to treat it so, for there was nothing serious about it. This morning I sent the sorrowful facts of this day's irremediable disaster to the Associated Press. Will both appear in the evening's papers, the one so blithe, the other so tragic? I lost Susie thirteen years ago. I lost her mother, her incomparable mother, five and a half years ago. Clara has gone away to live in Europe, and now I have lost Jean. How poor I am, who was once so rich! Seven months ago Mr. Roger died, one of the best friends I ever had, and the nearest perfect, as man and gentleman, I have yet met among my race. Within the last six weeks Gilder has passed away, and Laffin, old, old friends of mine. Jean lies yonder. I sit here. We are strangers under our own roof. We kissed hands good-bye at this door last night, and it was forever, we never suspecting it. She lies there, and I sit here, writing busying myself to keep my heart from breaking. How dazzlingly the sunshine is flooding the hills around! It is like a mockery. Seventy-four years, twenty-four days ago. 
seventy-four years old yesterday, who can estimate my age to-day? I have looked upon her again. I wonder I can bear it. She looks just as her mother looked when she lay dead in that Florentine villa so long ago. The sweet placidity of death. It is more beautiful than sleep. I saw her mother buried. I said I would never endure that horror again, that I would never again look into the grave of any one dear to me. I have kept to that. They will take Jean from this house to-morrow, and bear her to Elmira, New York, where lie those of us that have been released. But I shall not follow. Jean was on the dock when the ship came in, only four days ago. She was at the door, beaming a welcome, when I reached this house the next evening. We played cards, and she tried to teach me a new game, called Mark Twain. We sat chatting cheerily in the library last night, and she wouldn't let me look into the loggia, where she was making Christmas preparations. She said she would finish them in the morning, and then her little French friend would arrive from New York. The surprise would follow, the surprise she had been working over for days. While she was out for a moment, I disloyally stole a look. The loggia floor was clothed with rugs and furnished with chairs and sofas, and the uncompleted surprise was there, in the form of a Christmas tree, that was drenched with silver film in a most wonderful way. And on a table was a prodigal profusion of bright things which she was going to hang upon it to-day. What desecrating hand will ever banish that eloquent, unfinished surprise from that place? Not mine, surely. All these little matters have happened in the last four days. Little, yes, then, but not now. Nothing she said or thought or did is little now. And all the lavish humor, what is to become of it? It is pathos now pathos, and the thought of it brings tears. All these little things happened such a few hours ago, and now she lies yonder, lies yonder, and cares for nothing any more. Strange, marvellous, incredible. I have had this experience before, and it would still be incredible if I had had it a thousand times. Miss Jean is dead. That is what Katie said. When I heard the door open behind the bed's head without a preliminary knock, I supposed it was Jean coming to kiss me good morning, she being the only person who was used to entering without formalities. And so I have been to Jean's parlour, such a turmoil of Christmas presents for servants and friends. They are everywhere. Tables, chairs, sofas, the floor, everything is occupied and over-occupied. It is many and many a year since I have seen the like. In that ancient day, Mrs. Clemens and I used to slip softly into the nursery at midnight on Christmas Eve and look the array of presents over. The children were little then, and now here is Jean's parlor looking just as that nursery used to look. The presents are not labelled. The hands are forever idle that would have labelled them to-day. 
Jean's mother always worked herself down with her Christmas preparations. Jean did the same yesterday, and the preceding days, and the fatigue has cost her her life. The fatigue caused the convulsion that attacked her this morning. She had had no attack for months. Jean was so full of life and energy that she was constantly in danger of overtaxing her strength. Every morning she was in the saddle by half-past seven and off to the station for her mail. She examined the letters, and I distributed them, some to her, some to Mr. Payne, the others to the stenographer and myself. She dispatched her share, and then mounted her horse again, and went around superintending her farm and her poultry the rest of the day. Sometimes she played billiards with me after dinner, but she was usually too tired to play, and went early to bed. Yesterday afternoon I told her about some plans I had been devising while absent in Bermuda to lighten her burdens. We would get a housekeeper. Also we would put her share of the secretary work into Mr. Payne's hands. No, she wasn't willing. She had been making plans herself. The matter ended in a compromise. I submitted. I always did. She wouldn't audit the bills and let Payne fill out the checks. She would continue to attend to that herself. Also, she would continue to be housekeeper, and let Katie assist. Also, she would continue to answer the letters of personal friends for me. Such was the compromise. Both of us called it by that name, though I was not able to see where my formidable change had been made. However, Jean was pleased and that was sufficient for me. She was proud of being my secretary, and I was never able to persuade her to give up any part of her share in that unlovely work. In the talk last night I said I found everything going so smoothly that if she were willing I would go back to Bermuda in February and get blessedly out of the clash and turmoil again for another month. She was urgent that I should do it and said that if I would put off the trip until March, she would take Katie and go with me. We struck hands upon that, and said it was settled. I had a mind to write Bermuda by tomorrow's ship, and secure a furnished house and servants. I meant to write the letter this morning, but it will never be written now. For she lies yonder, and before her is another journey than that. Night is closing down. The rim of the sun barely shows above the skyline of the hills. I have been looking at that face again that was growing dearer and dearer to me every day. I was getting acquainted with Jean in these last nine months. She had been long in exile from home when she came to us three-quarters of a year ago. She had been shut up in sanitariums many miles from us. How eloquent, glad, and grateful she was to cross her father's threshold again! Would I bring her back to life if I could do it? I would not. If a word would do it, I would beg for strength to withhold the word. And I would have the strength, I am sure of it. In her loss I am almost bankrupt, and my life is a bitterness. But I am content for she has been enriched with the most precious of all gifts, 
that gift which makes all other gifts mean and poor death i have never wanted any released friend of mine restored to life since i reached manhood i felt in this way when susie passed away and later my wife and later mr rogers when clara met me at the station in new york and told me mr rogers had died suddenly that morning my thought was o oh, favorite of fortune fortunate all his long and lovely life fortunate in his latest moment the reporter said there were tears of sorrow in my eyes true but they were for me not for him he had suffered no loss all the fortunes he had ever made before were poverty compared with this one why did i build this house two years ago to shelter this vast emptiness how foolish i was but i shall stay in it the spirits of the dead hollow a house for me it was not so with other members of the family susie died in the house we built in hartford mrs clements would never enter it again but it made the house dearer to me i have entered it once since when it was tenantless and silent and forlorn but to me it was a holy place and beautiful it seemed to me that the spirits of the dead were all about me and would speak to me and welcome me if they could livy and susie and george and henry robinson and charles dudley warner how good and kind they were and how lovable their lives in fancy i would see them all again i would call the children back and hear them romp again with george that peerless black ex-slave and children's idol who came one day a flitting stranger to wash windows and stayed eighteen years until he died clara and jean would never enter again the new york hotel which their mother had frequented in earlier days they could not bear it but i shall stay in this house it is dearer to me to-night than ever it was before jean's spirit will make it beautiful for me always her lonely and tragic death but i will not think of that now jean's mother always devoted two or three weeks to christmas shopping and was always physically exhausted when christmas eve came jean was her very own child she wore herself out present hunting in new york these latter days Payne has just found on her desk a long list of names fifty he thinks people to whom she sent presents last night apparently she forgot no one and katy found there a roll of banknotes for the servants her dog has been wandering about the grounds to-day comradeless and forlorn i have seen him from the windows she got him from germany he has tall ears and looks exactly like a wolf he was educated in germany and knows no language but the german jean gave him no orders save in that tongue and so when the burglar alarm made a fierce clamor at midnight a fortnight ago the butler who is french and knows no german tried in vain to interest the dog in the supposed burglar jean wrote me to bermuda about the incident it was the last letter i was ever to receive from her bright head and her competent hand the dog will not be neglected 
There was never a kinder heart than Jean's. From her childhood up she always spent the most of her allowance on charities of one kind or another. After she had become secretary, and had her income doubled, she spent her money upon these things with a free hand. Mine, too, I am glad and grateful to say. She was a loyal friend to all animals, and she loved them all, birds, beasts, and everything, even snakes, an inheritance from me. She knew all the birds. She was high up in that lore. She became a member of various humane societies when she was still a little girl, both here and abroad, and she remained an active member to the last. She founded two or three societies for the protection of animals, here and in Europe. She was an embarrassing secretary, for she fished my correspondence out of the waste-basket and answered the letters. She thought all letters deserved the courtesy of an answer. Her mother brought her up in that kindly error. She could write a good letter, and was swift with her pen. She had but an indifferent ear to music, but her tongue took the languages with an easy facility. She never allowed her Italian, French, and German to get rusty through neglect. The telegrams of sympathy are flowing in from far and wide now, just as they did in Italy five years and a half ago, when the child's mother laid down her blameless life. They cannot heal the hurt, but they take away some of the pain. When Jean and I kissed hands and parted at my door last, how little did we imagine that in twenty-two hours the telegraph would be bringing words like these. From the bottom of our hearts we send out sympathy, dearest of friends. For many and many a day to come, wherever I go in this house, remembrances of Jean will mutely speak to me of her. Who can count the number of them? She was in exile two years with the hope of healing her malady, epilepsy. There were no words to express how grateful I am that she did not meet her fate in the hands of strangers, but in the loving shelter of her own home. Miss Jean is dead. It is true. Jean is dead. A month ago I was writing bubbling and hilarious articles for magazines yet to appear. And now I am writing this. Christmas Day, Noon Last night I went to Jean's room at intervals, and turned back the sheet, and looked at the peaceful face, and kissed the cold brow, and remembered that heart-breaking night in Florence so long ago, in that cavernous and silent vast villa, when I crept downstairs so many times, and turned back a sheet, and looked at a face just like this one. Jean's mother's face, and kissed a brow that was just like this one. And last night I saw again what I had seen then, that strange and lovely miracle, the sweet, soft contours of early maidenhood restored by the gracious hand of death. When Jean's mother lay dead, all trace of care and trouble and suffering and the corroding years had vanished out of the face and I was looking again upon it as I had known and worshipped it in its young bloom and beauty a whole generation before. About three in the morning 
while wandering about the house in the deep silences, as one does in times like these, when there is a dumb sense that something has been lost that will never be found again, yet must be sought, if only for the employment the useless seeking gives, I came upon Jean's dog in the hall downstairs, and noticed that he did not spring to greet me, according to his hospitable habit, but came slow and sorrowfully. Also I remembered that he had not visited Jean's apartment since the tragedy. Poor fellow! Did he know? I think so. Always, when Jean was abroad in the open, he was with her. Always, when she was in the house, he was with her, in the night as well as in the day. Her parlour was his bedroom. Whenever I happened upon him on the ground floor, he always followed me about, and when I went upstairs, he went too, in a tumultuous gallop. But now it was different. After patting him a little, I went to the library. He remained behind. When I went upstairs, he did not follow me, save with his wistful eyes. He has wonderful eyes, big and kind and eloquent. He can talk with them. He is a beautiful creature, and is a breed of the New York police dogs. I do not like dogs, because they bark when there is no occasion for it. But I have liked this one from the beginning, because he belonged to Jean, and because he never barks except when there is occasion, which is not oftener than twice a week. In my wanderings I visited Jean's parlour. On a shelf I found a pile of my books, and I knew what it meant. She was waiting for me to come home from Bermuda and autograph them. Then she would send them away, if I only knew whom she had intended them for. But I shall never know. I will keep them. Her hand has touched them. It is an accolade. They are noble now. And in a closet she had hidden a surprise for me. A thing I have often wished I owned, a noble big globe. I couldn't see it for the tears. She will never know the pride I take in it, and the pleasure. Today the mails are full of loveling remembrances for her, full of those old, old kind words she loved so well. Merry Christmas to Jean. If she could only have lived one day longer. At last she ran out of money, and would not use mine. So she sent to one of those New York homes for poor girls all the clothes she could spare, and more, most likely. Christmas night. This afternoon they took her away from her room. As soon as I might, I went down to the library. And there she lay, in her coffin, dressed in exactly the same clothes she wore when she stood at the other end of the same room on the 6th of October last, as Clara's chief bridesmaid. Her face was radiant with happy excitement then. It was the same face now, with the dignity of death and the peace of God upon it. They told me the first mortar to come was the dog. He came uninvited. He stood up on his hind legs, and rested his four paws upon the trestle, and took a last long look at the face that was so dear to him, then went his way as silently as he had come. 
he knows. At mid-afternoon it began to snow. The pity of it, that Jean could not see it. She loved the snow. The snow continued to fall. At six o'clock the hearse drew up to the door to bear away its pathetic burden. As they lifted the casket, Payne began playing on the orchestrelle Schubert's Impromptu, which was Jean's favorite. Then he played the intermezzo. That was for Susie. Then he played the Largo. That was for their mother. He did this at my request. Elsewhere in my autobiography I have told how the intermezzo and the Largo came to be associated in my heart with Susie and Livy in their last hours in this life. From my windows I saw the hearse and the carriages wind along the road, and gradually grow vague and spectral in the falling snow, and presently disappear. Jean was gone out of my life, and would not come back any more. Jervis, the cousin she had played with when they were babies together, he and her beloved old Katie, were conducting her to her distant childhood home, where she will lie by her mother's side once more, in the company of Susie and Langdon. December 26th The dog came to see me at eight o'clock this morning. He was very affectionate, poor orphan. My room will be his quarters hereafter. The storm raged all night. It has raged all the morning. The snow drives across the landscape in vast clouds, superb, sublime, and Jean not here to see. 2.30 p.m. It is the time appointed. The funeral has begun. Four hundred miles away, but I can see it all, just as if I were there. The scene is the library in the Langdon homestead. Jean's coffin stands where her mother and I stood forty years ago and were married, and where Susie's coffin stood thirteen years ago where her mother's stood five years and a half ago, and where mine will stand after a little time. Five o'clock. It is all over. When Clara went away two weeks ago to live in Europe, it was hard. But I could bear it, for I had Jean left. I said we would be a family. We said we would be close comrades and happy just we two. That fair dream was in my mind when Jean met me at the steamer last Monday. It was in my mind when she received me at the door last Tuesday evening. We were together. We were a family. The dream had come true. Oh, precisely true, contentedly true, satisfyingly true, and remained true two whole days. And now, now Jean is in her grave. In the grave, if I can believe it. God rest her sweet spirit. End of The Death of Jean by Mark Twain